Welcome to the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast, where we interview the world's leading CEOs, business executives, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and authors. Our mission is to learn the strategies and tactics that have helped our guests succeed in business and life and share those lessons with you so that you can become the Bulletproof Entrepreneur. My name is Chia Dogu and I'm the co-founder and COO of Odogu Media Group. Odogu Media Group is a podcast marketing and new media agency that helps corporations create and amplify their story via high-quality branded audio content that builds a community of highly engaged fans who are their ideal clients for their premium products and services. And now, without further ado, on with the show. This episode is brought to you by the B2B Sales Mastery Summit. If you want to learn how to grow your sales using Gorilla B2B sales strategies, then you will definitely want to check out this summit. 10 world-class entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and sales and marketing professionals are going to share their best-kept secrets on how to grow your sales in the B2B space. You'll learn things like how to leverage your skills, how to apply LinkedIn to get non-stop leads, how to prospect and win, how to be a go-giver so that you can get more clients by actually serving them first, and of course, the art of closing the deal with your prospects and clients so that they'll feel like they're doing business with their long-lost friend. I have speakers coming from the likes of Dan Locke, Bob Berg, Paul Brody, Kimanzi Constable, Josh Elledge, Dr. Cindy McGovern, Tyle Roxon, Monique Russell, and Karen Yankovic. They'll be sharing their best-kept secrets on how you can succeed and win in your B2B sales goals in 2020. The summit starts November the 18th and 19th and will feature 30-minute actionable keynote addresses to equip you with all the tools and strategies you need to succeed. If you want to sign up, go to www.b2bsamas.com or www.b2bsalesmasterysummit.com to sign up for the B2B Sales Mastery Summit. I can't wait to see you there. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. My guest today is Marwan Mary. Marwan is a professional negotiator. He works with businesses, governments, and organizations and NGOs of any size to resolve complex situations, which may include critical cases, social conflict, commercial negotiations, diplomatic relations, and patient-physician relations. In 2013, he and his co-founder, Laurent Combalber, founded the Negotiator Agency and Pacific Cat Network. Shortly after, their worldwide team of negotiators were dispersed around the globe. They opened offices from Edinburgh to Dubai, and they've been helping several organizations around the world with complex negotiation situations. He is an author of several highly successful publications and a lecturer at HEC in Paris. He is the chairman and chief instructor of HCNIA, which is the Hostage and Crisis Negotiation International Academy that trains and raises the awareness of elite units around the world for peaceful solutions to critical situations. And he and his co-founder were the subject of the hit CBS TV show, Ransom. So I am pleased to have Marwan on the show today to tell us a little bit more about himself, his business, and his life experiences as one of the world's leading negotiators in complex situations. So Marwan, welcome to the show. Yeah, good, good evening. 
Awesome, Marwan. So now let's get into the conversation because I read your lengthy background here and you've received a lot of accolades. You've been in the media several times. You were the subject. You and your co-founder were the subject of the TV show Ransom. But tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background. How did you get to where you are today? Right. Okay. So first of all, thank you for having me here. Um, Well, I've negotiated now for 22 years. I started my career in businesses, um, um, working on uh, social and sales negotiation. And then, but there's a part of my life I can tell, the other part, unfortunately, I cannot tell for obvious reasons. But basically, yeah, I was approached and I had to work on the confidential stuff and um, dealing with the critical situations. Could be like uh, uh, kidnapping ransoms, extortions, uh, confinements, retrenched people, and so on and so forth. So basically, um, so my job was to deal with complex situation where there was not much hope left. Mm. And seven years ago, in 2000, 2013, um, I, uh, Laurent Combalbert, my, my partner and myself, we created ADN Group. Right, which is the first a um, negotiation agency in the world. We have mm. basically uh, negotiators all around the world, and so pe- so basically we called in when um, businesses, NGOs, and even the UN have to deal with a complex situation. So uh, my experience is roughly twenty-two to twenty-three years of negotiation, and my partner Laurent. It's the same. His background is from tactical units, the RAID in French, which is the equivalent of the SWAT team uh, in in France. And we decided basically to aggregate our skills to help businesses and uh, and governmental uh, agencies. So that's roughly uh, my background. And on the day, if I have, if I just have to talk about. Um, Give you a specific example on a on a year on a yearly basis, for example, in a, on a yearly basis, I carry out, conduct, uh, run, or assist nearly fifty negotiations. Wow. So fifty negotiations per year, which is uh, quite a lot because mm-hmm. basically it's fifty percent of my time, mm-hmm. and the rest of it is dedicated to uh, transmitting knowledge, such as uh, training uh, and, uh, and, t- and teaching and giving conferences and, uh, for different organizations. And Laurent, basically, it's roughly the same. Well, 50% of our time is on the field, and the rest of it is the, um, transmitting knowledge. Mm. Now, why is it so important for you guys to spend 50% of your time teaching and giving back in that particular way? Yeah, I think it is because uh, basically uh, we've learned we've learned a lot from the field. We've learned a lot from um, uh, crisis negotiators. We've learned a lot from professional negotiators, and now I think our responsibility uh, is to transmit uh, what we've learned and just to help a future generation. Uh, deal with complex situation because the thing is when people are left by by themselves when they have to deal with critical stuff mm-hmm. most of the time it's uh, it's super difficult for them because um you know emotions uh, um take the upper hand mm-hmm. and take over uh, on, uh, on reason. So basically we tell them that there are tools, right? There are stat- strategies, tactics and techniques and we can help you with that uh, because we faced uh, we've faced previously those kind of situations. So it's important for us now to, to transmit knowledge. Oh, awesome, awesome. 
So now I want to talk a little bit more. I know your work in kidnap and ransom is highly sensitive, yep. so I don't want you to share what you're not willing to share. But in terms of just the broad specifics, you've mentioned that crisis situations are highly complex and people that do not have the knowledge and the skill set usually go in leading with emotions first. So in a situation like a kidnap, for example, are kidnappers mm-hmm. fundamentally the same across the board in your experience? Or are there nuances and differences between um, kidnapping groups from different regions around the world? Right. Um, the, the, uh, there are lots, lots, <laughs> loads of kidnaps and run some all around the world. Mm-hmm. So basically, the, the official number uh, is roughly 100 and 100,000 kidnaps per year. Wow. Worldwide. Right. An official number is nearly a million, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But most of the kidnaps, um, you and myself, we don't hear of them. Yes. Uh, because that's what we call a kidnap flash. It just lasts for a couple of hours. Mm. You have a lot of that in, in Mexico, in Colombia. For example, you have doctors waiting for your children at school. So basically, they, they kidnap them, and they're going to demand five hundred dollars to mm-hmm. the family. And they say, if you tell uh, the police, uh, we kill your children. So five hundred dollars. What you would do? Basically, you will pay. Mm-hmm. We are called in, and um, when ransom demands are basically superior to one hundred thousand uh, dollars, and that you, and when you're covered by what we call an insurance policy, mm. a kidnap and ransom uh, policy. So, um, so when a kidnap happens for uh, an employee uh, around the world, we can be called in. Mm. The good news about kidnap for ransom is that most of the time, the motivation is money, mm-hmm. right? All around the, the globe. So basically, those are criminal groups, and they they demand money for a lot of things. But sometimes it can be terrorist as well, which in which is another issue because when we have to deal with terrorists and when the, those are terrorist demands, we do not deal with that because we only were working, if I may say so, with criminal and with when they are money driven. Mm. So they will ask for something huge and our, our job is to make sure we pay as minimum as possible and to get the hostages safe and sound. So basically you could go to Yemen, you can go to Somali, you can get to Colombia, you can go to China, India, right? Most of the time, right, the, 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 the basic motivations uh, is money, is money. Mm-hmm. So, which is the good news? Which, the good news is as well is as long as the hostage is alive, right, the hostage retains its value. Mm-hmm. So that's why it gives us a leverage uh, in negotiation. Now, uh, there's a, all that you have to deal with lots of a uh, uh, complexity with ultimatums, threats, uh, pathological profiles, a, a the difficulty to get the upper hand on this kind of situation. Mm. But if we manage to to settle a deal, to settle a deal, we might get the hostages safe and sound. Mm, interesting, interesting. So now talking about let, staying on that topic for a little bit, I know that in the United States there's the no concession policy which came around in. I, I believe 1973 or so, when two U.S. diplomats were kidnapped in Saudi Arabia, uh, in the Saudi embassy in Sudan. 
And yeah. Richard Nixon came out and said, you know what, we're not negotiating, we're not going to pay blackmail. And this kind of unofficially now became the policy of the United States. And you see it in the movies. The U.S. government does not negotiate with <laughs> terrorists. They don't change foreign policy. Now, does the no-concession posture reduce the risk of kidnap and ransom, especially for um, people from these countries like the U.S. or the U.K. working in international situations like Somalia, Yemen, and what have you? No, unfortunately not. Mm. Right? Um, we, we, when we have to deal with a, 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 a kidnap and ransom, uh, you can find any cultures or any nationality when we uh, regarding the hostages. So, no, it does not reduce that. And we have to understand one thing is that the majority of the countries would say that, of course, we, we should never pay any ransom because on the principle, we agree uh, to them, of course, because the more you pay, the more the more you feed mm -hmm. uh, the business. Mm -hmm. But are you are you ready to sacrifice the hostages on the altar uh, of the fight uh, against uh, uh, kidnapping? Mm. It's a difficult uh, it's a difficult uh, answer because there is no good or bad answer. It's a dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the, so uh, we consider that if we deal with criminals and if life is at stake and if what matters the most is to save the hostages, maybe we can buy ourselves a bit peace in our heads if we manage to get them uh, safe and sound, paying as minimum as possible. Mm -hmm. But there's another question about that. When 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 you have those countries with say, okay, that say we should never negotiate with a terrorist or with criminals, I think the posture is wrong. Why? Because negotiation and uh, uh, negotiating is not about bargaining, it's not about making concessions concessions, or so on and so forth. Uh, we do negotiate, why do we negotiate with terrorists sometimes? It's to store for time, right? It's mm -hmm. to collect intel on the ground. It doesn't mean we're going to give in. Mm. But negotiating helps you uh, to get additional information so that the tactical units will be more prepared uh, for the final assault. So okay. if ever there's an assault to, to carry out. So basically, there's a, a misconception about negotiation because people that consider that uh, when you negotiate, you have to give in or have to make concessions. No, I have negotiated with people, right? Mm -hmm. And I have never given, I have never given them anything. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing is, I extracted information. Uh, I got to know better uh, the people I could talk to, had, I could understand their real motivations, and that I could, and then I could like initiate my strategy. Mm. But it doesn't mean I would give in something. So, should we negotiate with them? Yes, we should negotiate with them. It doesn't mean we should give in what they want, which is another issue. So, when those countries take this posture, they're right to take this posture, if I may say so, because we, we don't want to feed this business. Yeah. But what is important is that in the shadow, we have to <laughs> to deal with those things properly because mm. we don't want to have people dead. That's the thing as well. Mm, okay. So it's good to take the posture, but at the same time, it's also good to be smart about it in the background when you're working on exactly. to resolve the situation. Now, Exactly. Um, I, I know you guys work around the world and across the globe, and I personally, I was born and raised in Lagos, Nigeria, and in the last right. ten, 10 years or so, it seems like there's been an explosion of this kidnapping business. 
So not yeah. the small one, like you said, for five hundred dollars and what have you. Yeah. So now in those situations, I think it's similar to Mexico and Colombia as well. But in in that kind of a situation, what should the government implement as a policy to to squash these little kidnappings because they kidnap you and it's literally for fifty bucks, not even five hundred dollars, yeah. you know. So how can yeah. they yeah. the governments try try and strangle this thing and cut this thing out of business? Right. Um, what you say is perfect, uh, perfectly uh, correct. Uh, when you you compare Nigeria, Yemen, uh, uh, Venezuela. Um, uh, Colombia and those city, right? You um, you have um, maybe a hundred twenty kidnaps uh, uh, per day, mm-hmm. right? If you uh, if you add up all those countries, so which is a lot. Mm-hmm. The problem in those countries is that the most of the time governments are corrupt, mm-hmm. meaning. When we have to deal with certain situation, unfortunately, we cannot tell the authorities because we had experiences when we we had to we considered that warning the authorities might be a good idea. Unfortunately, not. What happened is that the authorities killed the hostage takers mm. and they decided to be the new captors, new abductors, and then you had to negotiate with the authorities. Mm. So basically, unfortunately. Uh, the, the 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 problem and and the and the, the the major problem is that in those countries first we have to restore justice okay a, a, a police force and then we can deal with that but unfortunately in those case in those countries it is not the case that's why kidnappers uh, captors abductors hostage takers right live freely if i may say so yes so first we have to restore right the the tools of 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 democracy the tool of republic and then we can deal with those guys but unfortunately it's not the case that's why things are not moving in a good way in the right way Mm. and in cases where it's the higher stakes negotiations take for example you're working on behalf of an oil company if you're yep. talking to a kidnapper, for example, does the fact that having you, a foreigner, come in to negotiate now change the dynamics of the situation? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, while we have now the um, the largest uh, negotiation network uh, in the world, we have more than 100 negotiators split all around the world because okay. for obvious reason. We don't talk uh, the language. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, there are a lot of things in the culture that we can miss. Mm-hmm. So basically, we have local uh, negotiators based in Africa, in India, in China, uh, in Asia, in the in in uh, in South America, where we can uh, call call upon them, right? And basically, we will remain in the shadow, mm-hmm. Lohan myself, right? And we will. Uh, be in charge of the strategy and they will be in charge of the tactics because of course for obvious reason they're on the field and they have much more information that we can have mm-hmm. so if negotiation has to be handled in english or in spanish for my uh, partner we, we 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 can directly negotiate uh, with those hostage takers unfortunately if it is carried out in another language we don't have the skills, we don't have the knowledge, so that's why it will be handed over to a local negotiator. Okay. 
Um, but is is going to is going to be sorry. But is going to be trained on what we we have developed a tool with uh, Laurent. It's a standard okay. called Pacificat. It's a nine-letter acronym. Uh, Pacificat, if I may say just one word on it, uh, five letters. Uh, sorry, nine letters to help pre- to help you prepare, conduct, close, and debrief any negotiation. That's the standard we use. Uh, when we have to deal with critical cases, okay. that's the standard we use on diplomatic issues, social conflicts, um, huge sales negotiation, and even patient relation when we have to deal with patients uh, who ref- uh, refuse to take the treatment. Okay. So, the, they, so basically, all our teams are trained on this single standard, meaning we have the same language. Mm. It's the same backbone. So basically, it's easy for everybody within the team then. Okay. So as you, I love how you brought this up because this is a good segue. So could you break down what that whole principle is of Pacifica? So take, for example, somebody that's listening to this somewhere around the world. They don't have access to come and meet you guys and take your training. What is this backbone that they can actually um, work around or use to, right. to work Right. Um, Laurent, my partner and myself, we have been trained um, um, many times uh, either by uh, uh, tactical units or by a, uh, businesses. And we realize one thing is that, is that um, when we, you have to deal uh, with complex situation, there is no good answers, mm-hmm. only good questions, okay. only good questions. Why? Because there's one factor that you can never put in any equation is the human factor. Everybody behaves differently according to the situation. Mm. So meaning it will only be your ability to ask yourself relevant questions to deal with the situation. And um, the standard we created, um, uh, the, the aim of the standard was not to give like definite and rigid a, uh, answers, but it will help you to ask yourself relevant questions and give you powerful tool to deal with this complexity without suffering from it. So this non-letter uh, acronym, uh, if I should mention what it is, it is power and leadership. Analyze the context, chart the actors, identify the strategy, form a team, influence and relationship, close the negotiation, uh, acquire from knowledge, uh, from experience, and transmit knowledge. Right. Mm-hmm. So, if you look at the first letters, right, you will uh, find a, a Pacificate. And uh, we wrote um, a big book on it, which is called A Negotiator. Uh, up to date, it's only translated. Uh, it's only it's, uh, it has only been published published in French. It's 660 pages pages on Pacificate, right, mm-hmm. to help you deal with any negotiation in the world. Normally, next year, it's going to be translated into English, which gives your followers the opportunity to get to know more about uh, the standards. Awesome. And I guess we'll be looking forward to that next year in 2020, <laughs> once the book gets uh, translated to English. So, so diverting from your work now and you sharing the principle of Pacifica, how did the TV show come about? What inspired you guys to say, hey, you know what, let's dive into the TV business? Right. Um, it was all about a, an opportunity. You know, yeah. our job, we remain in the shadow. Yeah. That's basically our job, right? And uh, 
It all started with my partner, uh, Laurent, right? He was in a plane sitting next to a girl who happens to be a, a French producer. So that basically, Laurent talked about our job, and she was like, if I may say so, mesmerized mm -hmm. about our job. They're fascinated because you have a lot of TV show about that. And she said, okay, there's something we could do together. So Ransom, first, first season, is an American, French, German, and Canadian uh, production. And uh, so basically, uh, they decided to create a show about our, uh, our, our mutual experiences. Mm -hmm. So uh, we spend hours and hours in London in the writing room. The writing room, what's the writing room? Basically, you had six uh, scripts. Uh, writers there and for 32 hours yeah we shared our experiences Laura and myself mm -hmm. and so basically they decided to keep the raw material and construct stories out of uh, past experiences so what you can find in the show uh, is inspired by uh, previous experiences, mm -hmm. but it is it has been done for a show. In real life, things might be different, but that's basically how things uh, started. It was just an opportunity in the plane, and then they came they came to us, and I say, okay, it might be a great great thing to do a show about you. And since we consider that we only lived in the shadow, mm. it might be as well a good opportunity to shed light on the um, on a job that um, not a lot of people know about. Yeah. No, it's, it's very interesting because, like I said earlier, before we started the conversation, I you know I used to watch your show quite a bit, even up until this last season, season three. And then I was like, wow, <laughs> this is so fascinating that so, someone like this exists. And then I saw two of you make your cameo, I believe it was last season. And then I was <laughs> yeah, like, oh, I, I think I need to reach out to this guy. So I immediately contacted <laughs> you guys. And then I was like, wow, I'd love to get to know more about you. And I'm so happy we're sitting Thank down you. today. Because a lot of the stories in there in the tv show you know you see a lot of technology uh the whole yeah. team working around it does that sh show up in real life do you use the same type of technology and all that no. stuff because it, i know it's highly hollywood <laughs> and fictionalized but you kind of want to wonder and say wow is this actually how you guys do your job and, you know yeah we'd love to but fortunately, it's not the case. Um, what is relevant is that we have a team. Mm. We're never alone, which mm. is true because, of course, with all, uh, with all by yourself, you cannot face with all the complexity mm. of a, a, a kidnap you know, or an extortion. Um, but yeah, but unfortunately, we don't have all those advanced tools and uh, and uh, all that they can have. Yes, we have some tools. Yeah, mm. we can have microphones. We can have hidden cams. Um we can have those stuff, but basically it's uh, it, it's limited. But mm. to, to tell to tell you the truth, we don't need that advanced tool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're fine with what we have. Yeah, yeah. So, what was your most memorable experience creating this TV show and you guys showing up on the big screen around the world? Right, uh, I can tell you uh, what was. Yeah, I can tell you. I was held hostage. Um, years ago, mm -hmm. and it was a it was a difficult experience, right? It lasted uh, for five hours, right? Mm. And I had to negotiate as a um, as a hostage. Mm. 
which was a, a difficult part, and it took me four hours and thirty minutes, right, mm. to to guess to get us uh, get out of <laughs> out of here. Mm-hmm. We were eleven hostages, right, in a gambling joint, mm-hmm. you know, an illegal. A gambling circle. So mm-hmm. basically, nobody could uh, get us there because the place was not supposed to exist. Mm. So, uh, uh, so I had to negotiate uh, for a life. So this episode in my life uh, remained uh, embedded uh, in my mind. And if you look at first season of Ransom, uh, you remember Eric Beaumont, mm-hmm. uh, who plays our character, is held hostage. Yes. And uh, yes, and uh, uh, and that's basically. I think it's a good um, reflection of what happened to me. So yeah, that was something mem- memorable because it was like a, um, how should I put it? A, a hint. It was like a hint to something, a reference mm. to something that happened to me in real life. Mm, mm, interesting. And what did the, the actor play you to? Because I know it's a composite character of you and Laurent. So what yep. are some of the characteristics he took from you versus the ones he took from Laurent to make the character <laughs> of Eric Beaumont? Uh, right, okay. Um, well, we have to be really humble to answer this question because I don't <laughs> want to show off, of course. It's yeah. a difficult answer. Uh, I think I, I, I'd like to talk about Laurent because okay. Laurent is one of the best negotiator in the world. I'm okay. not saying that because we have a mutual admiration, mm-hmm. but Laurent is always uh, one step ahead, mm. right? Is really, is, um, is really good at st- strategy. Um, he, he can think uh, before others, and that's what Eric's, uh, I think it's a great part of Eric. I think it reflects what Laurent is uh, in real life. Uh, if I had to talk, have to talk about myself, I'd, I'd say that, um, you know, when Eric's got to negotiate with this hostage taker, right? Mm-hmm. People, people that know me, um, it could be, it could be hostage takers or it could be a, a business's government. They say that I'm quite good at um, influencing people. How will I take the upper hand in a negotiation with advanced uh, negotiation skills? Mm. So, when you look at Eric, is really good at you know um, raising awareness. How it will it will induce change? How it will provoke change? Mm-hmm. How he will draw on the resources still available in the hostage taker so that the solution he might offer might be accepted. Mm. So I think yeah, the, the good mixture in strategy and influencer skills might be Laura and myself uh, that you, that are reflected in the character of Eric Beaumont. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, well, yeah. And now you mentioned the the situation where you were held hostage in the off the books gambling casino. Now, early yeah. in your career, you work as a behavioral analyst, and I think you still do helping casinos catch cheats. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah. But you financed your college tuition by yeah. playing poker. So tell us a little yeah. bit more about you know what you learned playing poker and how you translated that knowledge into helping casinos find people that are trying to rip them off in in their gaming houses. Yeah, um, my, my father was a great poker player, right? Mm. And uh, at the time, b- before it was widely broadcast on TV, uh, it was played in illegal gambling circles, mm. right? And basically, it was in the hands of the mafia. 
so my father always refused to teach me uh, how to play poker. So, of course, I did the opposite. And I learned by myself, play with friends. First, we played with matches. Then we played with coins. And I was a bit better than uh, my friends. And... Um, and I, I was fascinated by magic and magician. And then so I started uh, to to play cards, manipulate cards. And then I was a bit bored and I decided to get to know another universe, uh, the world of cheating, right? Mm -hmm. And I say, how can this professional cheat can um, can crash casinos, can have their go bankrupt, and so I had so I learned so much from professional cheats. It's a little little world. There's basically a hundred professional cheats in the world. Mm. So those guys, when they cheat, you can't see anything. They have le legendary skills, mm. and nobody knows them. Unle uh, unless you know uh, this little circle, and so. Um, I was fortunate enough to to learn from two of them, and I manipulated Carl for years and years, hours and hours. And this knowledge I had, I decided to to help casinos protect against professional cheats. Mm. So, um, so, uh, so basically, general manager managers from casinos uh, for gambling uh, circles would tell me, "My well, one is my casino well protected, so I would cheat for an hour." Uh, uh, at slot machines, blackjack, a mm. uh, poker. If and if nobody could catch me, I will tell the general manager, "Your casino is not well protected." Mm. Then I will help the casinos, right, um, protect against uh, professional cheats. Um, and when I was a student, I played poker a lot. I was not cheating. Mm. It's important to say that. Mm -hmm. And since I was a bit better than others, you know, at detecting lies, bluffs, and uh, understand micro expressions, I, I put that in. Uh, I used that uh, a lot. So it helped me pay my tuition. I paid all my my school uh, my my students uh, tuition with that. I mm -hmm. studied at the Sorbonne University uh, in France, Paris, uh, and my holidays as well, and so on and so forth. It was it was good money. Mm -hmm. uh, I played at night. Uh, three to four days per week, right? Because when you like when you, you're 20, you can be tired when you go to school. Now I'm 44, it's a bit more difficult, <laughs> and I don't play that much. Yeah. Fortunately, I play like once every semester because my job, uh, and my job is as uh, is, an, is as um, my job is to negotiate, not mm. to play that much. Mm. Yes. Interesting. Now, talking about detecting lies and micro-expression, I think this yep. is a key skill because um, in today's world, especially when it comes to interpersonal relationships, you know, people are always frightened that, oh, is my spouse cheating on me? Is my boyfriend cheating on me? <laughs> you know, stuff stuff like that goes on all the yeah. time. You have no idea. Yep. So, so, in your own words, if you could teach us a little something about how do we detect lies Take, for example, either in our interpersonal relationships or in our small business relationships where we're trying to buy something and somebody is trying to teach us. So teach us a little bit about um, the art of detecting lies and understanding and using micro expressions so we don't get cheated ourselves. Right, right. Honestly, I I need more than four hours to answer <laughs> this question. So it won't be possible. Why? Because the thing is, is there is in when you, I've worked on lie detection mm. for twenty four years now. So that's why in the show, 
there's there are hints about a, a lie detection, right? Mm-hmm. About micro expression, behavior analysis, and so on and so forth, because it all comes from that. Mm. Uh, but uh, you know, the Pinocchio syndrome does not exist, right? There is mm. no uh, universal sign of deceit, unfortunately. Okay. The, you have to work with what we call corroborating evidence, right? Okay. With one signal that you can never tell if somebody uh, is lying or not. So, uh, w- uh, just one thing: when we have, when we work on lie detection, and unfortunately, we do that uh, on a daily basis mm-hmm. because on high-stick situations, high-stick negotiation. Of course, there are bluffs, manipulations, uh, ultimatums, threats, and you have to assess the credibility mm-hmm. of all that. So what we look into is, is there a, a discrepancy? Is there a gap between what you can say and what your behavior might display? Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, those anomalies, that's what we call behavioral anomalies, might be hints, right? Might be signal that mm-hmm. there's something uh, that there's something wrong. It doesn't mean that people are lying, okay. but we have to open our eyes uh, uh, wide. So let me give you an example. That's something I use a lot. Um, if you ask uh, somebody, uh, I don't know, uh, 100 thousand and four hundred and thirty six divided by 43 right mm-hmm. if i say okay what's the result you will tell me okay i don't know of course and mm-hmm. when you will do i don't know you will shoulder shrug you know you mm-hmm. with your with your with your shoulder, shoulder you will shrug yeah right of course of course yeah exactly so basically that's what all people all people do if even if you ask a blind uh, blind person uh, please give me this result. He will say, okay, I don't know. And it will shrug his shoulder. Mm-hmm. Now, if, uh, for example, uh, I would ask you something and you tell me, I don't know, but without shrugging your shoulder, I would say, okay, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Mm-hmm. Because if I know that you shrug them all the time when you don't know something and here you do not shrug anymore, mm-hmm. you will try to control your body. Mm. Meaning there's more than meets the eye. It doesn't mean that you are lying, but of course, I will try to dig up to understand what is at stake. Okay. So basically, we're looking for behavioral anomalies. Okay. Oh, very interesting. So you're actually just doing a test to exclude what is not normal from the person. Exactly. And then you now exactly. go from there. Very, exactly. Very interesting. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Marwan, as we start to wind down the show, I mean, it's been a pleasure talking with you for the past few minutes, and I think I can still go on, but I want to respect you. <laughs> <laughs> so, as we start to wind down the show, could you, um, in your own words, for example, what has been some of the highlights and some of the most memorable things about your career thus far, and what do you think you could have done differently if you were to go back to do it again? Right. Uh, interesting question. Uh, I think uh, I've never been asked such a question. Um, the memorable experience, uh, yes, I, is, as I told you, when I was a hostage because mm-hmm. it was so difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there are negotiations that have failed, of course, and there are negotiations I will fail again. Mm-hmm. Even if our success rate is 98%, which is uh, quite a lot, mm-hmm. They are negotiation that we failed because we did did not manage to understand the real stakes, right? Mm-hmm. The real interest of the opposing parties. Mm. So 
Um, and what happened is that uh, in when when I, when sometimes we fail a negotiation in the coming months, we try to understand what did we miss. So basically, each and every of our negotiation is debriefed. Okay. So. When we get to understand what we missed, yes, sometimes we'd like to rewind the tape, of course, to go back to, right uh, to the past. But unfortunately, it's not, it's not possible. Mm -hmm. But it increases our resilience because the re resiliency is your ability to overcome difficulties. Mm -hmm. And so um, the thing is, is there's one important thing for us is that when we, uh, we fail, we have to understand why did we fail? Okay. I remember this 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 phrase in Batman. You know, Batman Begins. You mm -hmm. remember? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I love it. It's say when, when you know when Bruce Wayne is like ten years old, is uh, playing in the in this big garden in in front of this big mansion, and all of a sudden it falls in the in the well. Yeah. You know, there's a well. Yeah, exactly. And it get injured. So his his father uh, is taking a, a rope, right? Yeah. And just goes goes down the well and uh, just to help his son. And he says, right, you know, Bruce, why do we fall? Mm. And uh, he says, no, no, father. It's just to pick us off up. And that's the thing. Mm. When we fall, we have to understand why we, why we fell. It's, but, and, but, and if we fall, it's just to get up, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing is, if you don't understand why, unfortunately, you are bound to reproduce your same, the same mistakes. Yeah. That's why we have to learn from the past. And that's the principle of debriefing. So um, I can't tell you uh, the, the negotiations that we failed because most of them we signed an, an NDA. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But just keep in mind one thing, yeah. We debrief them all just to make sure we mm -hmm. will not reproduce the, our past errors. Mm -hmm. Awesome, awesome. And with that said, one, one, we've reached the end of the episode. It's been, it's been such yep. a pleasure having you here to share your story the share, same, and, and same. teaching us more about um, what you do. I think it's super, super fascinating. I wish we could get your show back on Netflix or something else, but I mean, <laughs> I'd love to see more and hear more about you guys and your work and learn more about what you're doing. But I just want to thank you for coming to share your story and just uh, teaching us a lot more about um, negotiations and dealing with people on a personal basis. Thank you very much as well. Thank you very much for your time. Awesome. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com.